Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Lord, we pray for one another in this room. We pray for our family of of believers, our church, those who are sick, those who are uh, desperately needing a touch of your hand this week. Lord, I know we've each brought things into this service that, uh, that will, could be a distraction, but Lord, I pray that we truly can lay them at your feet and focus on you. I pray for our neighbors. I pray for our community. I do pray for our nation. I pray for our world that we, we can be that influence you've called us to be. So God, we thank you for allowing us to gather together, and I pray that you, you would be lifted up, and as you are lifted up, you will draw people to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a very appropriate reminder for us today as we uh, pray for our, our country, pray for our uh, friends and neighbors in our community, and I hope that you're doing that uh, even as we go into this week. Let me begin by just saying welcome again to our service. It's good to see you today, and uh, thank you for choosing to gather with us, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. Thank you for uh, gathering with us for this time of, of worship. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, You'll remember that we've been in a series entitled, Ready or Not, Here He Comes. And uh, next Sunday, we, we will be looking at the, uh, one of the climax portions of this series, and that's the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a wonderful uh, reminder, a wonderful experience as we talk about that event. But today, um, I, I was just moved to kind of divert from, from that series just for, for today. Maybe I was stirred by some of the things that we are facing as, a, as people and as, as a country. And in so doing, there's a passage that I want us to focus on. It's actually going to be a pretty familiar verse or passage of scripture that many of you have heard before. And, and in that, I, I, we're not going to talk about politics so much, or that's really not our, our goal. But uh, our goal today is to talk about what it, as we as Christians, as, as the church of Christ, the Calvary in particular here in our community, what should we be doing? What is it that, how should this, uh, how should our lives be reflecting what God wants us to do now and in this community at this point, and even whether it's an election season or not. That's what we want to we get to today. So as we do, what I've heard in seasons like this for our country, or maybe it's been holidays like Fourth of July or Memorial Day, I've often heard a verse, particular verse, focused on, and, and that's where we want to take it today. And I've seen yard signs, I've seen people uh, use this, window stickers, church signs often have this verse of Scripture. So I, I know for many of you, at least the reference is going to be familiar, and it's found in the Old Testament, book of Second Chronicles, chapter number 7, verse number 14. You'll see the, the words coming up. I just encourage you to just say this verse with me, if you would. Whether you're here in the audience or watching online, let's just say this verse together, starting with, if my people. Say it with me, please. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, again, I, many of you have heard at least that reference 
often when I hear this verse expressed or this passage expressed, it's, it's kind of an American rallying cry. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the idea that we, we often will immediately kind of take the, the, uh, the people mentioned there, they're called by his name, that, that's American Christians, that's often how it's used, and the healing of the land would be America being brought back to, uh, returning to God and being blessed by God once again is often how we, we have seen that particular verse. My question for day, today is, is that an appropriate understanding, appropriate interpretation, if you would, of this particular verse? And that's what I want us to look at and see really what is God saying to us here in, in, in this time in which we live. If, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we have a study we've been calling Foundations and Ladies and Men, and we've been specifically talking about recently about the Word of God. And we, we actually have talked last week about some, some rules of reading, understanding, interpreting, if you would, the, the Bible and, and what are some things that are very important. For those of you on Wednesday nights, um, you should remember this, but one of the things that one of the rules we've talked about is when you're looking at a verse or you're looking at a word in a verse, What's one of the big things you have to make sure that you always look at as well? It's the word context. Context, context. You have to look before, after, look at who the verse is speaking to, what is being said about it. So let's do that with this verse. I wanted to give us some context, all right? So we're going to be, for the most part today, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You can find it there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices. But let me just back up a couple verses. Verse number, um, verse number 11 we find that uh, kind of gives us an idea of the setting. It says that when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, now if we go on to the next chapter, we find out that those two things took 20 years to do. All right, So this was a major government building project, building the temple of God and the palace for the, for the king. So this is a huge uh, project. But he goes on to say, The Lord appeared to him, that's Solomon, at night, and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. First of all, notice what we're talking about. This is a conversation between uh, Solomon, who's the king of Israel, and God, who's king of kings, the, the Lord Almighty. All right, This is a conversation that they're having. And God specifically, in his part of this conversation, refers back to a prayer that Solomon prayed. Now, you can find this later. If you go back a couple chapters, chapter 6 is really where this prayer is made by God, or by Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple that, that he has built. He's dedicating it back to God. And in this prayer, um, he, several times he talks about God's greatness, and he gives him praise for that. He also uh, talks about God's mercy to him and his family, mercy to their nation. Uh, he, he talks specifically several times about God when you, when you look on this temple that we build and when you, uh, when you look on your people, uh, regard, be regarded as of what we're doing here and doing it for you. And one thing that intrigues me, several times within this, his prayer, Solomon assumes something that all of us would note, and that is that as good as things were going with, with Israel, he knew that Israel would have some issues. He knew that at some point they would sin and they would fall away, and he kind of takes that assumption into place, and he, and he even re refers to the pact of God, when, when that happens and your people do repent and they come back, please forgive them and, and restore them back to, to health. Now, 
what we know, chapter 7, verse, the first few verses, obviously God was pleased with this prayer. Because as soon as Solomon was done, as he's standing in front and they had these sacrifices ready to be given to God, God from heaven sent fire down, consumed those sacrifices. All the people said, oh, God just showed up. This was a big deal, right? And they fall on their faces before God and lift up praise to him and said, his love endures forever. That's what a great atmosphere, okay? That's the, what God is referring to. And now he's, he's going back to this prayer that Solomon prayed. And he said, Solomon, I heard what you said. He said, I, I've heard these things about your prayers. In verse 13 now, he goes on to say, so Solomon, when I do shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or I command locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague among my people, it, when I do punish the people, when, I do, uh, when they do fall away and I punish them, then our verse comes in, verse 14. When that happens, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and ultimately he says, I will heal their land. If you go to the next verse, he continues the promise, verse 15. God says, now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My name and my heart will always be there. You'll notice God is being very specific about the place, about the temple, about where they are. And, and he's in, in the middle, if my people, based on this place, will do these things, he ultimately says, I will heal their, their land. But let's make sure we understand then. In context, this particular verse is spoken to Israel spoken to ancient Israel in the time in which they lived, the time in which the temple was, was built. And God does promise when they repent that he will return and he will rescue them. Here's what we're, we have the tendency to do, though. Many Christians, specifically American Christians, although I would dare say there's probably other Christians in other countries who have done the same thing, we try to make this a verse that speaks directly to us as a natural, national verse for, for us. It's a rallying cry for Christians in our land that, that, uh, that God would heal. And usually in our healings, we're talking about morality and politics and even finances that God will heal. We've got to be careful of something. And Christians, I want to make sure you get this. We've got to be careful not to confuse our patriotism with Christianity. They're not the same thing. We've got to be careful that we don't, we don't assume that because we're Americans that, that makes us this verse, that makes us God's people in his land. This is a verse, what we're talking about, this covenant that God had with Israel was a very exclusive a very, uh, a, 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 a very unique covenant that he had, and he didn't co-opt it to other nations because his gospel would spread around the world, but he didn't then transplant that to, to other nations in the world as well. God did not make this covenant with America or with American Christians. We, we've got to keep that in mind. But with that in mind, is there anything that we can apply from this verse to ourselves here in thousands of years later, 21st century America? Well, if again, Wednesday night, another interpretation rule that we talked about is we must interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We're living now in, in post-resurrection in the New Testament time. So we've got the Old Testament is still real and relevant and God-given, but we've got to look at it through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the, the New Testament. So here's a couple of things we can keep in mind, even about this Old Testament passage. Here's our memory verse. Wednesday night, people, you ready to say it? Okay, I'll, no, I won't make any of you do that. But here's our memory verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for, and the, and the verse tells us for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training 
in righteousness. Now, you might circle that word scripture because here's what we know Paul's talking about. The scripture that he refers to there would, would include the Old Testament. In fact, it would be primarily the Old Testament scriptures he's talking about as being God-breathed and being useful for us, right? As long as they're correctly interpreted, they are still useful for us. Give me another example. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, Paul is referring to the uh, some, pro- some issues with Israel itself, and he talks about some re- times of rebellion that they had as they were going through the wilderness and some of the punishment that God brought to them. And then he says to us, again, to New Testament Christians, verse number 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the, cu- the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing, uh, standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So what he's saying is we can interpret the Old Testament and understand that those, those can be warnings for us still today, several thousand years later. They are things that still apply as, as warnings and instructions for us. So let's, let's just be clear. So is America Israel? No. Is God an American? No. Which would also mean he's not Democrat or Republican. I'll just throw that in for free, okay? So he, that God is, is not those things, but... Can these truths from the Old Testament applied correctly be real for us today? Absolutely. If we understand what God was saying to them, it's very appropriate for us as believers to apply the spirit of 714. In fact, that's, what I, that's been my, my thought today. It's, it, this is a challenge to me. This verse, I, I call it the 714 challenge. Because as for believers, the, the spirit of what God is saying to us, to them then, is also relevant for us today. Peter, in his, in his writing, 1 Peter chapter 2, said something very, very important that we got to remember. He said in verse 10, once, again, he's speaking to Christians. This is post-resurrection. This is the, those of us who are followers of Christ. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So today, followers of Christ... We are, we are God's people. We are those that he recognizes by name, and we're called by that name as Christians, Christ followers. So there are some timeless truths, even in 714, that we can still apply as God's people for us today. So I want to take this, this promise and, and just put it into words that I think accurately express some of the things he was saying to them that can still apply to us today. Here's our first thought. If my people understand their purpose. If you remember the first phrase in this promise is, if my people who are called by my name. It's a very powerful phrase. What a a thing that God refers to people as, as his people. But here's something else interesting, I think, about this particular writing, 2 Chronicles specifically, that it kind of shared shed some light on things for me. In, in our Bibles, when you look at 2 Chronicles, it's pretty close to the beginning of the Old Testament. It's one of those historical books. But if you were to look at the, a, a Jewish Bible, where, when these were the, the canon was put together, Chronicles would be at the end of the Old Testament, the, the last book of the Old Testament. Now, why is that? Because chronologically, according to the timeline, Chronicles is the was the last book written by time. It would follow in chronology books like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah because Chronicles was actually written to a people 
that were coming back out of exile in a foreign, in a foreign land. These people have prophesied that when they sinned that they would be taken away. Well, now when God brings them back into their land, one of those people coming back, one of the exiles, becomes God's writer of the Chronicles. So he's writing history, but he's writing it as history from a perspective of one who had been away in exile, had been in slavery, and had been in, in, in encampment by those things. So what we understand is that what, what we have here is Israel that is coming back, the people of God, who over all these years of being in exile probably had some true identity crisis. They themselves, they, they, they had lost that national feeling and fervor because they were far away from their land. And even, if they, even when they come back uh, the, and there's a new temple that is built, it's still not as good, they say, as the old one. Or they, they don't remember the glory days of Israel. So what you're having is you're having people who are struggling to know who they are Struggling to know, you know, I hear this, maybe grandpa told me that we're God's people and we have a purpose, but boy, I don't see that. And even, even those that are coming back, they're having trouble now re reclaiming, if you would, their heart, who God made them to be and, and what God had made them to do. So now when God says, if my people call by my name, he's taking them back to the original part of when Abraham, their, their founding father, was called by God and said, there will be a people called by my name, and I have chosen this generation. And so these people, they, they may not have seen it before. In the house of David, it's almost, it's just a distant memory to them. They don't remember all of those things, but now they're coming back, and, and this God is reminding them that he has he has a purpose then, and he still has a purpose for them today. It's about who they are, and, and nothing can take that away. They had to, before they could get what God wanted them to do, they had to know who they were and why they were here, why, what their purpose was. I, I suggest to you today that we as followers of Christ, we've, we need the same kind of reminder. To do what God has for us to do, we need to know who we are who we are in, in God's sight and, and what he has called us to do, as we said, as his people. First and foremost, we not know who we are as the people of God. And, and if not, we're going to miss this whole point. I want to take you back to 1 Peter again. Remember we talked earlier, 1 Peter said that you are God's, you are God's people. He he's kind of starts that off in verse number 4 of the same chapter. And he says, as you come to him, that's to Jesus, the living stone, you also, and he's, again, he's speaking to us as Christians, you're like living stones being built into a spiritual house. Some translations say you're being built into his spiritual temple. That, so we're getting now some, some images from that Old Testament picture of when Solomon built that temple and this was a place of worship. Now God says, you, my people, you're my temple. New Testament, you guys are the, it, it, the temple is no longer a, a gorgeous building. It's not a, a structure. It's, it's the congregation of God's people, those who we have. We are his temple. And he goes on to say, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are here as God's temple, and you are here to worship him, to bring glory to him, for your life to be manifest through, through what you do, for him to be manifest through your life. You keep reading verse 9, but you, again, Christians, you're, look at these descriptions of us, Christians. You're chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had, not, you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, let me stop there. Remember Christians, something that we, we, we are proud of wherever we come from in our heritage, but remember this land, wherever you live on this earth, this isn't your, this isn't your citizenship. Our, we're, we're just literally resident aliens here on this earth, wherever we live. The point is, our citizenship, Paul said, is in heaven. That's where we're going. That's where, that's where our inheritance is. Everything we do here is temporary. It's, it's, it's part of, of, of how we, we live and motivate through this world, but we're heading somewhere else. This isn't, our, we're, we're foreigners, according to this verse. We're, we're exiles, much like the children of Israel and, and the book of Chronicles. And he says, as those exiles abstain from sinful, sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. Christians, you get it? We're, we're God's children we're chosen. We're, he calls us his special possession. He purchased us through the blood of his son. What an incredible position. And now because of that, we are his temple. We are priests. And part of our job here is simply our, our main focus is to bring glory to God through our lives. That God's name is praised through our lives. And then as he says at the end, and then other people see God in our lives and ultimately glorify God as well because of our lives. We're here to glorify him and to bring others so that they will glorify him. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. Remember that? You are the salt of the earth. Christians, you are the light of the world. So what do you do with that? So let your light shine. Before others, why? So that they may, look, sounds very familiar to Peter, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why am I here? Who am I? I'm a child of God, chosen of God. I am here to bring glory to God, and then my light, my life should shine in such a way so that others see God in me and also glorify God. That's who we are. You see, the first part of this, this promise is if my people will understand who they are and why they're here. Understand your purpose as God's children. Our ultimate purpose is to glorify him and to bring others to do the same. Here's what we continue on. If my people understand their purpose and if my people apply my principles. Look at the verse again. If my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There's four words in there that we will look at, but I'm going to compress them down into three precepts, three principles, if you would. Uh, and they're all going to start with the word H just to help you remember these things. I'll call them the H3 principles, okay? He gives us these, these three things that you're going to see throughout the Scriptures that God's people, Old Testament and New, New Testament, he has challenged us, he has instructed us to keep these basic principles. And the first one is humility, Simple definition according to what we're looking at today, simple definition of humility is in this way, it's declaring my dependence on God. It's taking my, putting my pride down and saying, I need help. It's, it's declaring that he is God, and it's, it's truly, it is releasing control of me and saying, God, I, I give it up to you. I admit that I, I, I'm sinful. I admit that I am weak. I admit that I have vulnerabilities. I humbly come before you, Micah said it this way in chapter 6. The prophet says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, 
And what does the Lord require of you? Here he goes, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And what does that look like? It's pretty simple, walk humbly with God. What is, is that something visible? Is that something that, that you, is that some kind of activity you do to walk humbly? Perhaps. You think about it, the Old Testament actually gives us some examples. They had some activities they involved themselves in that, that described or declared, I am being humble. Now, just me saying that, understand, that can also go bad in the sense of if, if I'm saying it to show that I'm humble, I may be having a trouble with humility, right? And those kind of things can also very easily become religious rather than what God wants. But let's look at those for just a second. Here's a couple of examples. The Old Testament talks about sackcloth and ashes. Have you heard that phrase before? Sackcloth, what you think of, it's kind of a burlap-ish feel. You take your, your clothes off and put on this gunny sack, basically, itchy, smelly, and, it, and then you would pour ashes from the fire on your head and, and sit in sackcloth and ashes. And it was to be a sign of humility, a sign of repentance, a sign of grieving. All of those things, whatever, the, the, and it, that became a symbol. When you saw that, that was the, the issue was we're, we're seeing hopefully humility in action. Another phrase that you may have seen, it's when they were to rend or to tear their clothes, right? Something in mourning, something that, that they see that, that terrifies or horrifies or they see about themselves and they would tear their clothes as a sign of, of that, that repentance or that humility, if you would. And, and both of those were visible. But, but remember, that we even have, there's still cultures that do that, you know, ashes and things, all of those, and it's to be a sign of humility. But again, we have to be careful because we can make that into, if I do that, I'm humble. You know, if I do this, I'm humble. And God says something different. Here's what he said to, to Joel, the prophet. He said, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting and mourning. And then look at the next verse. Rend your heart and not your garments. You can tear your clothes all day and pour all the ashes from the fireplace on your head. Your, God says humility starts here. It starts in the heart. It's a matter of being humble from the inside. Will humility show? I, I think it will, but it's not a matter of displaying it. It's a matter of, of letting God, the brokenness of our hearts, the rending, the breaking of our stubborn, pride-filled hearts that say, I don't need help, or I don't need God, or I can do this, or I don't want to do what God, we, we, we allow God to rend or to break our, our prideful hearts. And it's about recognizing God for who he is, recognizing God for who we are, because we're not God, he's not vacated at all and let us take that position and it's recognizing that we have a need for him and that we get real with God about our sin and about our struggles and about our weaknesses and about the, where we are and we come humbly, walking humbly with our God and then submissive to his plan. Here's how James wrote it in the New Testament. James chapter four, he said, wash your hands, you sinners. Now remember, he's talking to Christians here. Okay, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That, that's the idea of humility. And then look at the next verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humbling means I, I fall down on my face before a holy God, recognizing who I am, and let him lift me up to the position to be used the way he wants me to walking humbly with our God. 
Now, I do believe true humility will show. I don't think we have to put a costume on to do so. I think it will show, and I, I think the number one way God shows that it happens in our lives is the way you act humbly in your interactions with other people. And the way that you treat others, specifically without condemnation, without condescension, without looking at them as if you've got it all together and they, they just need help. It's a matter of we all need help and I, I want to come with you and let's help each other grow. Help, it's a matter of, and I think that's where you're going to see humility most exemplified is in our interactions with others. But here's the first thought, humility, declaring our dependence on God. The second word he mentions, or that will mention, is the word hunger. Pursuing the presence of God. Remember what, Paul, what Solomon heard. He said, not only humble yourselves, but pray and seek my face. Well, remember, these are kind of progressive, in my opinion. They kind of build on each other. If Once you fall on your face humbly before God, and, and you re- realize, boy, I am my, my, I have nothing to stand in pride over. And then you lift your eyes and you see the one who has unconditional love for you and you see him looking at you with open arms and you let him lift you up and you come to him. And, and now you don't just want to, to say, whoo, that, that was tough. Now you want, I want to know you. I see what you've done in my life. I see the love that you have. And, and I want to pursue a growing relationship. with uh, Only you can help me. And I want, I want to know you. Here's how Jesus expressed it. I think Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They pursue. They go after righteousness. I, I think that's a, just a picturesque way of, of saying what we're talking about. The, the question I want you to think about for just a moment is this. Do I Hunger and thirst after God. Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? The, the reason I think that's such a picturesque way of saying it is that's, that in itself is, is such a powerful image that many of us do not quite understand. Because when we say hungry, thirsty, most of us right here, some of you are, I've heard a couple of stomachs while I'm, pre, you know what I'm saying? Most of us here, we think of hunger, we're thinking of, you know, what the restaurant we're going to go to as soon as this is over, right? And, and I'm going to, and some of you, that's all you're thinking about right now. I get that. You're thinking about what's going to happen next, that, and, and thirsty, man. We go to the faucet and we get relatively clean water, you know, that we, we're pretty, we're pretty good with that. So hunger and thirst is kind of like, Ooh, I need something to fill my belly, kind of. Oh, I've got, I need some water, that kind of. But some of you, I, I know you've been, we've been on trips together, and we've been to places, and there are places here in our country and around the world where people truly understand hunger and thirst. And if you've ever seen a little child who, who hasn't had a regular meal every day, and you hand them a bowl of rice, and, and they look at it like this is gold, or you give them a cup of clean water that they haven't, they, they've not seen anything that looks that way, and they drink it. It's as if they've, they've tasted the, the best drink and all. It's just water. But when you're truly hungry and thirsty, those things mean incredible amounts to you. Now, think of that. Pull it into our, our is that the way you think of your relationship with God? God, I, I can't get enough of you. God, the more I know of you, the more I want to know. I am so hungry and thirsty just to know more of you, God, and to know this relationship. That, I think, is what what God is telling us. Is that how I feel in my relationship? Here's two things that Solomon was told that would help to show that. First, he says uh, to pray. 
Now, we say pray because that's what you say in church, right? You pray, everybody prays. Sure, I say my prayers. But now look at that from a pursuit perspective, from a hunger and thirst perspective. Am I praying to God as if I've got to pray to God today? I can't miss this moment because it's me and God talking, and God, here is my heart. Or God, if I don't come to you, I'm without hope. God, I am coming as desperate as one who is full of praise, whatever. But this is a hunger and thirst type of prayer. Is, is, that, how, is that what we think of when we come to to God in our, in our times of prayer. It's not casual. It's, it's consistent and it's, it's urgent and it's, it's real in our lives, something that's truly changing us. There's a lot of verses that you could refer to this. There's one that I want you to, to focus on just for a moment because it's very timely. Uh, the book of Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made to all people, for all people. That's it. All these kind of prayers. Just pray, pray, pray. But notice the group he mentions specifically, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in our godliness and holiness. Praying for those in physical authority over us, whether we particularly like them or not, whether we agree with them or not. It says one of the first places we start, should start our prayers is bless our leaders. And I'm not talking about that the that proverbial pot falls on their head. We're talking about that they would know you, that they would know wisdom, that someone would maybe come into their lives that could direct them in the right place. We're praying for our leaders as well as we're praying for one another. It's about prayer. I read this quote. Uh, Sidlow Baxter said this, People may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our person, but they are helpless against our prayers. Your prayers have that kind of power. My, my question is, are we pursuing God in this area of prayer the way that we're hungry and thirst? Pray without ceasing. Pray and don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep pr Pray constantly. Pray with urgency. So pray, and then he said, and seek my face. Seek is just what you think. It means to search out. It means to, to go after, to desire, to, to truly grasp after. But notice how personal it is. He didn't say, and while you're praying, seek for an answer, seek for a result. He said to seek my face. God said, pursue me, pursue my presence. Seek me in your life. Seek the, the relationship that we can have. It, it's not much different, I don't think, from what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. His point in that, that passage is don't worry about stuff, don't, whether it's money or trials or problems. Don't worry about the things that you think you need. Seek me first, and you'll find out that I'm really everything you need. I'm what you're looking for. Seek me first. Let me fill in the gaps. And that's what, the, what I think Solomon was told by God is pray, seek God's face. Pursue hunger and thirsty for knowing the presence of God. Seek him. And that's where it comes real to me, is that is not the way that my life works a lot of times. There are so many other things you can seek after, and everybody in this room knows. I mean, and, and we're not talking sin here. We're talking, uh, you can seek after just being comfortable. You can seek after pleasure and having fun. You can seek after uh, money. You can seek after popularity. You can seek after success. All of these things are, are part of who we are, and they're drawing us, and we're saying, I, I, I want that, and we're going after that. And God says, listen, those things in themselves may not be wrong, but they're temporary. They're going to go away. I want to seek being happy. Understand, happiness doesn't, doesn't last. 
What we're looking for is joy. We're looking for fulfillment. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for, for God's will. And, and so we seek after God, and he wants to give us those things that will last. But we find ourselves seeking for the things that, that go away. Seek my face, God says to Solomon. So if we understand our purpose, we apply God's principles. The third thing is, he says, then we talk about, and the word is holiness. We return to a heart that pleases God. Humble, pray. And once we're humble and we pray and we're truly seeking after God's face, like I said, this kind of builds because here's the thing. If you're truly drawing closer in the presence of God, you're going to have less and less ability to just ignore things that are not right in your life. Sin, apathy, whatever. If that, that can go until the closer you get to the glory of God, the more you realize that needs to change. And so as I'm humbling myself before God and I'm praying and I'm seeking his presence, then he's going to make some things aware in my life that I'm going to need to deal with to, to make this thing work. And that's where he says, and then turn from their wicked ways. You pray, you seek, and you see what needs to change, and you turn from your wicked ways. Here's what we know. that we, In this world that we live, we're living literally in a hostile environment, right? And it, some of it's brazen, it's bold, it's don't do that, do this, that, that doesn't make any sense, you're not, and it just kind of comes after you're crazy if you go that way. Sometimes it's just bold and in your face, but a lot of times it's a little more subtle. Really, is that, you, you know, if, if you do that, this could be a lot easier path, or God wants you to be happy, don't you think? And if he wants you to be happy, then, then this would be, this, this will make you happy, or maybe it's even like Eve heard early in the book of Genesis when she heard, did God really say? And then we just cast a little, we hear a little bit of doubt cast on what God would want us to do. Whatever it is, there, there, is, a, there is a world that's out to destroy the, the walk, the journey that we have. And, and we have to realize we live in this hostile environment. Remember what Peter said about being God's people. But if you also remember, we read this verse, I urge you as foreigners and, and exiles, to abstain from, look at this, sinful desires which wage against your soul. There's a war waging inside of us, but the headquarters is not where you might think. The headquarters is not said to be in, in hell. The headquarters is in, your, in here. It's my sinful desires. That's what's warring against my life. It's what I, it's what I have desired. It's the things that I, I want and I'm going after. Those are the, the enemies, the things that are, that, that's why God says we need to require, a, we require a renewing of our minds and of our hearts. Here's what I want you to know, believers. Holiness is not an option for us as Christians, but it's also not automatic. It's got to be an intentional part of what we do on a daily basis. God has called us to be holy as he is holy. He is changing us inside, but he, that requires that we are intentionally choosing those things that make a difference. Second Corinthians says it this way, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There's some intentionality in there, but the key is that last phrase, out of reverence for God. We're not talking about rules and religious regulations. We're talking about as I grow seeking God's face and I grow in that relationship and I see the things that need to change, now out of reverence for the one who saved me, the one who loves me, the one who cares for me, out of reverence, out of fear and out of love for him, 
I want to do that which shows his holiness in my life. I want to make those choices that make that kind of difference as I'm truly following after him. But now let's go back. Remember, this intentional holiness is what we're after. But all of us know, as Solomon did, that we're not going to do this perfectly. We're going to have issues along our spiritual journey. We're going to fall. Our mouth's going to get us in trouble. Our attitudes are not going to be with our relationships. We're going to do things that, that require, that, that in a sense, that have shown that we're still in this, in this battle. So what happens then? What happens when we encounter this, this sin? And that's where this prayer of Sol, to Solomon or this thought that Solomon makes sense. We have to turn from our wicked ways. The biblical word for that is the word repent, which by definition is, it's that, it's a turning. When you came to Jesus, if you know Christ as your Savior, you, you were going a direction and you're confronted with the truth of Jesus and he says, now follow me. And we turn, we, it's 180 degree and we, we follow him and he saves us and now we're on a different path. Well, Christians in our life, we still struggling against the, the things that, that battle us. There are gonna be times in our life when God reveals those things to us that says that's not right or this needs to change. And it's that point that as we're told, we turn from it, we repent. We do what God has called us. We turn to a heart that pleases God. I want, because I wanna please you, God. It's not about pleasing other people. In fact, it really doesn't matter what other people think. It's what do you think about what I'm doing with my life and with my thoughts. If my people recognize their purpose and apply my principles, then let's look at the last part of this verse. Then my people can trust that God will do something incredible. There's incredible results as a part of this promise. He says, if my people do this, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, keep in mind, again, the promise was for the nation of Israel. It was for their, their relationship, and the, the audience was God's chosen people, Israel, and their national repentance to God. But as Christians, if we apply these principles as followers of Christ, can we anticipate similar outcomes? I believe we can. And so let's think about what, what God promised. He said, if my people do this, the first thing he says is, I will hear. But that's the word that, that's the word that means a lot to us because having the ear of the almighty God, think about that. That, the, that God who created you is, is, is listening to you, is hearing you. That, that, but we've known from the beginning that there is an issue with that. In fact, in Isaiah, the prophet talks about the problem that the children of Israel had, and he, he said it is your, your, your sin. He says, your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And look at this last phrase, so that he will not hear. Now, that's the thing that we realize in Scripture. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. It puts us in a place where because of who he is, we are, we, are, we have this great God. The New Testament word is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That sin separates us from him. We, ha we don't have the ability of a relationship with him because of our sin. In and of ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's the, that's the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus made a way for us to be able to come to his father, to have a relationship with him. In fact, here's how 1 John uh, puts it. 1 John says that if uh, whoever has the son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. That's a powerful matter of a fact statement. You either have life or you don't. And the only thing that makes a difference is do you have Jesus or not? If you have the son, if you have the relationship with him, then you have life. If you do not, and, and that's a question. Do you have life? Do you know Jesus? Is there a relationship with him? In fact, the next verse he goes on to say, and I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have, this, that you have an eternal relationship with God. Do you? Have you received the gift that Jesus purchased by his death and his resurrection, the gift of eternal life? Do you know him personally? Because if you do, you have life, and you can know that you have eternal life because of your relationship with God. But notice the confidence that comes with that, the next verse. This is the confidence we have in approaching God based on our relationship, that if we ask anything according to his will, what does he say? He hears us. Christians, when we talk about prayer, please don't miss the incredible privilege you have of coming into the throne room of God. And in fact, Hebrews says we can actually come boldly to his throne. Because of Jesus Christ, not anything that we've done or deserved, but because we can come, when we're talking to God, we're coming boldly into the presence of Almighty God. And he promises as our, as a father to his children, he hears us because of our relationship. So we know that God hears, and we know that that's part of our relationship. But here's what I do know that we as Christians have realized, that in those times in our life when we do fall in sin and we don't, we don't deal with that sin in our life and God is leading us and we, we choose to ignore that, that Somehow in that relation, the relationship hasn't changed. I'm still one of God's kids. He's still my father. But the communication is not what it could be. I, either I don't even want to really be in his presence or I'm finding it, it, it's a difficult place. The psalm put it this way. I think it's a great way. If I regard iniquity or I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear doesn't mean that he's turned away from us, he's let us go, he's turned his back on us, but there's a, there's a, a block, there's a, the, the communication is severed, if you would, or the communication is hindered because of that which we're not, that's why turning away from our sin so that he will hear us. And then he says, not only will I hear, he says, I will forgive. There's not many more powerful phrases in, the, in English language than you're forgiven. I forgive you. And standing before a holy God, none of us deserve to hear that. But because of Jesus, we can. Ephesians says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Undeserved, unmerited, but because of Christ, I stand before him as forgiven. I stand blameless before God because of the, of the blood of Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. I am forgiven before God, but again, in my daily walk, in my daily sin, in my issues, what happens at that point? Do I have, what, what is my recourse? I know that God has saved me, but, but I, I feel this weight again of the sin and the guilt and the, and the, and then 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if you confess your sins, again, referring to Christians, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's the forgiveness part that we, we forgiven as in justified, always, forever and eternity. But now, as I get grimy and dirty and sin, I need, I need cleansing. Many people have referred this kind of as that idea. Some of you work at jobs where you really get dirty. 
I mean, when you come home, you stink. I'm just saying, okay? Everybody knows it. It's not a secret any longer. You got stuff, grime, dirt, hay, whatever it is, it's all over you. And then you come and you stand under that shower and it just pours over and cleanses you from head to toe. You see, God has forgiven us as we're his children. We stand and declare, but as, as we come to him and say, God, I'm sorry, I should not have, and we repent and we turn from that, God cleanses us again with that, that daily dose of, yes, you are forgiven. I will, he, I will hear, I will forgive. And then the last words he says, and I will heal. Now, that's a critical word for us to understand. Because if we've said about sin, if we understand sin at all, sin, it it separates us from God. But even when we're forgiven, what happens to the damage that sin has caused? God forgives us, but what about the the results, the destruction that sin has caused? Yes, I'm forgiven. I know I'm one of God's kids. But what about the destruction, the the hurt, the pain? And God says, not only do you hear and forgive, but he also heals. He also brings, in fact, what we hear about Jesus, when Isaiah prophesied about him, he said that he was wounded or he was, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his, Jesus' wounds, we are healed. We're forgiven, yes, but we're healed. God is doing a spiritual work in us, healing us from the inside out because of what Jesus has done in our lives. God is promising that, that kind of healing. And so when he says to, to Solomon, again, we're, we're talking about the nation of Israel. It's a promise of healing their land. And, it's not, and now we know that that land is not necessarily where we live or our, our country of origin. or the country. We're talking about a healing that God wants to do within his people, a healing he wants to do within us. And he wants to heal relationships. He wants to heal the things that, that in, in our life, to heal our churches, to heal our lives, to heal the, the, the marriages and the, the parts of our life that are hurt and that sin is destroyed. And God in his power, as we come and we humble ourselves and we seek God's face and we turn from our ways, he promises to, to let that healing begin in our lives and in our church and to make a difference in us so that we can take this verse we understand that if I, as a Christian, I humble myself and I'll hunger after praying and seeking God's face, and I'll, and I'll intentionally live a life of holiness and turning away from that sin, that God will hear, forgive, and heal. James said, James chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I heard somebody say that what the church, the church here in America needs is a fresh breath of prayer. We need to, by prayer, come to God with our confession, with our humility, with our seeking after him and see him do a work in our lives. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, church, Calvary, those of you who are gathered as followers, God's people, right here, will you join me in this 714 challenge? Will you take a a time this week and look at our life, look at your life personally and see in what way do I, do I need to humble myself before God and walk humbly? In what way do I need to, to, to reignite that hunger in my soul for him? And, and how do I intentionally live in holiness? Now, here's a thought. The promise doesn't say that God will then politically heal our land, but he promises he'll heal. So let's say that 
as a church, we let God begin that healing work and we see relationships healed and we see lives healed and marriages healed and we see, and all those things are now bringing glory to God. Do you think that might have an influence on our community? Think about the power that could have on our nation is if God's people one by one begin to follow him and humble ourselves and serve him. God doesn't, God, God's promise was for a nation, but God's promise for his people is trust me and let me do a work. And, and regardless of what happens around you, let me show you how to glorify me and show others how, who I am so that they in turn will glorify me. Make a salt and light difference. Will you take the challenge? When you look at your life, where is God speaking to me and what needs to change in my life? How can I be the Christian that lives in walking humbly before our God? Would you bow your heads with me, please? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, whether you're here in this room or you're watching with us online, let me ask you a couple questions. First of all, do you, do you know him? Are, are you truly one of his people, one of his children? Have you received the gift of eternal life that was purchased through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven and that you're one of God's chosen possession? Have you received his gift? If not, would you, would you do that today? Would you listen to this invitation that God is giving you? Come, I want to save you. Come, I want to forgive you. I've sent my son to die for you. Would you receive his gift? Would you call out to him and once and for all know that you have life, eternal life, through his son, Jesus Christ? Right from where you're seated, just cry out to God, God, I'm a, I know that I'm a sinner and separated from you, but I believe Jesus died for me. Please forgive me. Save me and let me know you. I will follow you with my life. Would you call out to him today? For those of you who know Christ, you know you're one of God's kids. Would, would you consider taking this challenge with me? 714 challenge. God, help me to know what it looks like to walk humbly with you, to be hungry for your presence, and to live intentionally holy before you and before the world. Because God, I know you brought me here to glorify you and to show others who you are so they in turn will glorify you. So God, here I am. Church, let's take that challenge and let's see what would happen in our lives, in our church, in our community if we, if we would commit to do what you, he's called us to do today. Father, I love you and I thank you for loving me. Thank you for this word, this truth. Man, I've heard it for years, but Lord, when I see how that, these principles still apply to us, I pray that, that I'll take this challenge this week. Let you truly examine me and before you humbly I stand and I want to know you, follow you and I pray that that would be the heart of your people today. That we would truly want to know you like never before. And Father, if there's one listening under the sound of my voice that's not yet received that gift of salvation, please call them. Please invite them. Please bring them to yourself so they can know once and for all, that they have that eternal life. Lord, please take your word and just mold it to what the needs specifically in our hearts are today and help us to do something with what you show us. 
their heads still bowed, their eyes closed, the music continues. I invite you to just take some time and maybe commit that 714 challenge to God in prayer. Or maybe you have questions. Take that card, fill them out. Pastor, would you call me? I'd love to. Or if online, just say, I'd love to ask some questions. We'd love to show you what God's word would say in regards to your life today. But let me give you just a moment just to pray and commit these things to God as we bring this service to a close this morning.